0: Hello out there in Radioland. It's every other Sunday again, and I'm Ronnie Lipschitz. You're listening to Sustainability Now, a radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. Before we turn to our guest today, I want to just read the following statement. K-Squid is committed to increasing the diversity of voices within our organization and on our airwaves. We will expand our broad- broadcast platform for meaningful conversations, that affirm the right to a safe community for everyone, regardless of race, gender, or economic standing. Bringing together diverse perspectives is a core value of K-Squid. We are many voices, one station. My guest today is our very own Len Bea, and we're going to have a conversation about sustainable urban planning and how to do it in Santa Cruz. Hey, Len, are you there?
1: I'm right here. I'm actually in the station.
0: (laughs) Yeah, wow. Um, Let me me just read a little bit of biographical information here for those of you who uh, are not familiar with Len. He's a semi-retired energy engineer and commissioning agent, former land use planner, musician, interfaith minister, gardener, dancer, political and cultural commentator. He seems to be very busy. He's host of the Wednesday broadcast of Talk of the Bay on K-Squid and shares hosting of Border-Free Radio, which you just heard before this program. Um, His focus is on the current state of Santa Cruz County's urbanized spaces and their unsustainable characteristics, the principles of urban design for walkable neighborhoods and new urbanism that can bring our cities back into balance. We're going to talk about uh, start by talking with about a little bit about urban planning, um, which, as I see it, is something of an oxymoron, especially if we look at Santa Cruz, uh, and then eventually uh, expand into talking about uh, sustainable urban planning in Santa Cruz. So, Len, let me start by asking you to define urban planning.
1: Well, uh, if you go by academia definitions of today, urban planning is the Uh, I'll call it the art and science of uh, creating urban spaces. And and most degree programs call it urban and regional planning. So, of course, it looks at uh, not just uh, within urban areas, but also between urban areas. And uh, the planning process has developed really just over the last century, um, and especially since the 1950s with a whole lot of, uh, state legislation. Um, and of course, local, um, planning, uh, documents and ordinances that are pursuant to state legislation. And some of that has been pushed at the federal level, but mostly it's been one stage is kind of following another. And it follows a long trend of that, uh, what I would call specialization, um, where you know, the first building codes we had in, anywhere um, including in the united states were there for safety in the united states they were initiated after huge urban fires where one house would catch on fire and then after many blocks worth of buildings burnt down they thought gee maybe we ought to make sure that there are certain standards these are built to so that if one thing catches on fire it doesn't burn up everything else so that was the beginning of building codes Um, And the beginning of uh, laying out cities, however, is very old, and it really kind of parallels what you could call centralization of state power, um, and even more so the growth of empires. So, you know, the earliest uh, sort of planned cities where, rather than it just being vernacular architecture and people just laying out their Where they put buildings and where they put their public works, which could have been irrigation channels, drainage ditches, uh, wells, all of those things that serve a community. Uh, Those things were just done by ordinary people at one time, right? And in some parts of the world still are. Uh, But in these kind of imperial contexts, uh, they were laid out as grids often. And often with, you know, very fancy channels for carrying waste away and runoff away and bringing water supply in. Um, and you can see that even today if you go and look at ruins in Egypt, uh, uh, ruins in, in uh, what was once Rome in Italy, um, and other out uh, settlements of the Roman Empire in places like France, Morocco, you name it. There are these examples of cities that were developed The earliest of them being from about the fifth millennium B.C. in China. And um, those familiar with, for example, a lot of people have have heard of feng shui, which has its roots in um, kind of Chinese cosmology and what's called geomancy, which was kind of an acupuncture of the earth, looking at the energy channels in the earth and, um, you know, linked in with their s- systems of astrology and numerology as well. So they would lay out cities. Um, it was supposed to be a synthesis, um, you know, kind of a parallel of the cosmos that would place man, nature, heaven, and of course the state, which, which with its authority created this new city in harmony. Um, So those, you know, it goes way back. But, you know, when you think of how cities developed in the United States, the early cities and towns, of course, kind of took form. You know, the United States was really created by early mercantilist economy, which became the modern capitalist economy. And so a lot of it is very influenced by what was needed for commerce. And that trend continues if you you know even look at say an old midwestern town we have a sort of classic Main Street um, there's a certain functionality to it that works because it's human scale because those older towns predate the automobile and in many cases predate railroads um, and you know they're they have a form that's at human scale even though they're designed primarily to serve the needs of commerce Um, and we can get into that some more, but that history just, you know, has kept on and on. And, you know, one example that's kind of interesting, um, for anyone who's ever been to Lisbon and Portugal is Lisbon was, or, you know, Portugal was one of the richest kingdoms in the world, probably the richest in the 1700s. And the city of Lisbon was practically completely destroyed by a huge earthquake in 1755, And King Joseph of Portugal and his ministers, you know, immediately launched efforts to rebuild the city. They had all this money, you know, they were very wealthy from the colonies and um, they completely rebuilt whole sections of the city, completely relayed street lines um, and so forth. So if you go to Portugal today, what you're seeing is, you know, the vision of how a city should look effective 1755. And if you go to Paris, um, you know, Haussmann who was like, he was commissioned um, by the government to remodel the medieval street plan of the city because they didn't have any wide boulevards in the 1850s. So they actually tore down whole swaths of old medieval buildings in order to lay out the big boulevards that anyone who goes to Paris today would see. And that's another you know example. Here's a you know wealthy empire with colonies abroad, and they're laying out their city to serve. You know, it, of course, it provided for more public spaces and monument spaces and all of that. Um, it also served some sanitary considerations because, in the same time, they put in all kinds of sewer lines and all that. You know, all kinds of things happened during that period, but a lot of it was about making it passable for military troops, which of course is the same rationale used for the interstate highway system. And so that started in the fifties in the U S so, you know, these, these kinds of big schemes of top down planning is the model for what is now modern, mostly locally controlled and, and ostensibly democratic planning. However, because of the way these rules and laws have been structured, they're mostly reactive. They basically set minimum standards. Um, they say, "Oh yeah, well, we'll we need to provide for a certain amount of traffic, for example." Um, and so, you know, post World War II, we've seen this amazing process of uh, codifying the notion that you need to meet what's called level of service with roads and streets, which is however much demand people have to drive automobiles, you've got to meet that. And the problem with trying to meet that is you can't because the bigger the streets and the straighter the boulevards, the more people drive them and something called induced demand. And it's finally been recognized by virtually everybody in the profession, but it hasn't hasn't come around actually changing the way the rules are drawn until very recently in the state of California, as of last month, I'm talking 2020 transportation planning is no longer looking at level of service. It's looking at vehicle miles traveled. Right. And that might sound like a small thing, but that's a revolutionary change in how we approach uh Urban planning in California and of course we're we right now are living in the legacy of not doing that yeah. but uh, that's that's a, a Pretty amazing change uh, when you begin to understand what that rationale does to how you lay out a city
0: so uh, Before before we take a, a break so we can catch up on on those things uh, Let me see if I can summarize modern or contemporary urban planning. It sounds to me as though uh, until about the mid part of the century, uh, planning was largely a kind of a bourgeois exercise in the interests of the economy. And then it became engineered and scientized. And uh, I just want to make a suggestion here that the kinds of struggles that we have, for instance in Santa Cruz, um, are between that kind of vision of an engineered environment and uh, the bourgeois environment that people are accustomed to certain ways of doing things but it's not good for them Uh, we come back to that in just a minute because i want to just take a quick break here you're listening to ksqd 90.7 fm uh, on your radio dial and ksqd.org on the internet and over to you emily
2: In the ongoing effort to slow the spread of COVID-19, Santa Cruz now requires patrons and staff of essential businesses to wear face coverings. This order applies to public, commercial, and government spaces where face-to-face interactions pose a risk of transmission, including grocery stores, healthcare offices, restaurant pickup counters, public transit, and essential government offices. We now know that COVID-19 can be transmitted by people for days before they are symptomatic. These measures are intended to protect our essential workers and each other. Businesses must take reasonable measures, such as posting signs to remind visitors about face coverings and may not serve customers who do not observe the order. Workers do not need to face cover if they are alone in personal offices, but we must put them on when others enter. Residents are encouraged to continue the practice. Safe physical distancing when they go out for exercise or recreation. Individuals engaged on outdoor recreation and able to practice distancing are not required to wear face coverings, but should move to avoid close proximity with passers-by. Remember, staying home, frequent hand-washing, and physical distancing are the best ways to prevent the spread of COVID-19, the disease caused by the coronavirus.
0: You're listening to Sustainability Now on Squid. 90.7 FM. This is Ronnie Lipschitz and my guest today is Len Bea, our very own Len Beaa. We're talking about sustainable urban planning in the city of Santa Cruz and in the world more generally I guess. So um, Len, to get back to what we were talking about, how did you end up uh, doing or working in urban planning?
1: Well I ended up working in urban planning very briefly. Uh, I studied uh, environmental planning as a college student. Uh, got to uh, earned a degree in that and I had focused on at the time what we uh, called environmental resource um, analysis and use, which is what you probably today would dub sustainable land use. Um, mm-hmm. The word sustainability hadn't really entered into the jargon at that point. Right. Um, and um, and I also had a kind of a secondary focus on transportation. I ended up working for Santa Cruz County for one year. I worked in a nonprofit organization that did uh, planning-related uh, work and advocacy, some market research and public education projects um, for a couple of years after that, and then worked for San Mateo County um, as a planner for a couple of years. And then I jumped ship and switched hats and I became an engineer, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which was an interesting transition. Um, and I worked in the mostly the field of uh, energy efficiency in buildings and industrial plants. This is all non-residential building work. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so I really stopped working as a planner. And the reason I did that, actually the reason I left... Uh, the Santa Cruz County job was, I felt that, um, the process had become corrupted, um, and entirely politicized. And it was to a point where the best developers with the best ideas were just flatly, I'm going to say, manipulated and betrayed. And the worst developers were the ones who could afford to navigate that process and still come out with a project in the end. And so what to me appeared to be the wrong approach was that the people who were most best equipped to do the kind of innovation that I felt even as early as the 70s was called for because of environmental issues uh, were squeezed out. And the ones who didn't give a damn about innovation Um, but knew how to make money and knew how to work the system, succeeded and continued in business. And that was a very direct outcome of the way the county operated at the time. Um, I can't speak for what was going on in cities. I was working at the county. Um, I worked for the nonprofit for a while, and we, uh, we had some success in advocating for um, a few you know what i'll say changes on the edges um, uh, for a while for example the the county was very actively encouraging uh, passive solar design and subdivision design uh, they were uh, they were looking at um, you know facilitating the transition of, of local industry to, to more energy efficient approach um, you know it was there's a there's a long period of development from the seventies till now, but, but those were some of the things that happened. Um, and then in the case of San Mateo County, um, I just, again, became very frustrated in the reactivity of it. instead of being proactive, the way the rules are written is planning is okay. Set them, set the minimum standard. And when you say minimum standard, you'd think, well, don't people want to exceed the minimum? That's just the minimum. Well, no, they don't. <laughs> um, you set that standard, and that becomes the way it way it's drawn. And we're we still working with, um, you know, zoning, um, you know, good old fashioned zoning rules, which are gradually being changed in many communities in the country and in the world. But um, you know, we <laughs> that just kind of demarcates sections of cities for different functions. You know, this is something that originated in Prussia, you know, and spread to Britain and then the U.S. and Scandinavia. I mean, um, you know, zoning might make sense if you give if you just assume all industry shall be dirty and we don't want it anywhere near where people live. And um, and then all housing shall be isolated from all other uses. Well, that's that's not the way cities developed until just halfway through this century the last century rather through the 1900s so um yeah so i i just found that i'd rather do something where i had tangible results and engineering brought me that opportunity and so that's
0: where i went that's right so but but you've maintained an interest in in urban planning and sustainable urban planning and what why is that
1: um that's a I, you know, I don't know if I have a good answer to that question, but I, oh, well. <laughs> but well, I have so partly it, because so... I've mean I've continued to be, do advocacy work in that field from time mm-hmm. to time. And, um, you know, and I've had a, you know, for example, I, you know, I attended a conference in, in Cuba once where I had an opportunity to talk with planners and, you know, city, city officials, um, you know and it, it came in handy and i was you know it was interesting because it's a, such a different context for how city planning is done um uh, than we have here um and i've also followed um you know i i was uh certified as um an accredited what they call an accredited professional for leadership in energy and environmental design or lead, oh, yes. lead. you've probably yeah. heard of the lead rating system oh, yes. so i'm oh, i'm a yes. certified certified you know lead ap person and uh, one of the things that lead was developing was lead for neighborhood design which is an extension beyond just building design and where i certainly have probably more expertise in the building design and uh, on the neighborhood design it really gets to the heart of what doesn't work in most modern city spaces particularly um, you know, anything that's been built since World War II.
0: Well, I I always told my students um, when I retired last week, but when I was teaching, I would talk to them about the materiality of the landscape and the fact that things that were put down a hundred years ago still are there today. And it's not just a matter of, you know, building over or getting rid of. It's very hard to uh, to change those kinds of things. And Again, if we were to start from scratch, we probably wouldn't have city streets the way we have them now. But these were put down a long time ago, um, and so so I'm sort of curious, though. Um, you know, lead certification of a neighborhood does this mean new neighborhoods? Or, yes, yeah. It's uh, that okay, system so is
1: designed for new neighborhoods, but there is hope for existing neighborhoods, and we can go there. There's a uh, there's a whole kind of school of thought that's generally. Put under the umbrella of what's called new urbanism. Yeah, um, talk about that. And those, you know, the, there's all other terms you'll hear like walkable neighborhoods or walkable streets. Um, you hear uh, um, uh, village centers or uh, transit-oriented development or um, other terms like that. are somewhat somewhat interchangeable, um, but uh, new urbanism kind of captures the. The overall idea, um, and you know, it really new urbanism as an identity really developed in the 1980s and 90s, and it was inspired by the environmental movements that were afoot at the time, and very much a reaction to to the sort of modernist school of design and to urban sprawl, which the you know the problems of sprawl were already evident at that time, and unfortunately we've continued to push the limits on that. Um, Because we're really running up against sprawl limits now that are, they're not just environmental, which we can kind of shove down the road or down the stream uh, to somebody else in another area or another time, Um, but they're, they're unsustainable financially because low density development, you know, you get this huge influx of of capital to develop all these streets and sewer lines and water lines and drainage systems and lay out all these, you know, low densities, single family suburbs. Um, but maintaining it is extremely expensive and there is not a community anywhere in the United States that is currently caught up on the maintenance costs of maintaining the infrastructure they already have. Let alone to maintain anything new they might be building.
0: That's an interesting point. Well, let's, let's take a, a break here um, briefly. You're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz and the Monterey Bay region, and KSQD.org on the internet. Over to you, Emily.
2: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Tune in to our award-winning morning news program right here during primetime, 8 o'clock weekday mornings, right here on KSQD, on KSQD. Our independent news program offers diverse perspectives, unique opinions unheard in the mainstream media, live as the news unfolds. Tune in for Democracy Now! The War and Peace Report, weekday mornings at 8, right here on KSQD Community Radio, 90.7 FM.
0: So this is Ronnie Lipschitz, you're listening to Sustainability Now on Squid 90.7 FM and my guest today is Len Bea and we're talking about sustainable urban development. We've been sort of talking about generalities up to now. I want to ask one more general question and then we can go to Santa Cruz. Um, and it's an experience that I had some years ago when I was riding on a bus, I think it was, or a taxi from Dallas Airport to Arlington, Virginia. In the dead of winter, and looking around and thinking, how can any city ever be made sustainable? Uh, especially since we can't start from scratch, uh, and you know, and changes have to be laid over what is already there. How do you think about that?
1: Well. Um the people who are behind the new urbanist movement. I mean, the people who are actually actively doing the planning design have done some amazing work and have actually been able to uh, create some new spaces that are, you know, stunning transformations. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to pose something simply because it's easier. I think for most people to visualize and that is um, think of a street, near where you live that has a lot of traffic on it and has um you know maybe a few trees but not not really big trees nothing that's going to span over the street just you know a street where the traffic is moving fast and where the road's pretty straight and where people will you know cut in and out of driveways and cut around corners fast and think about what that street looks like you know typically you've got you may or may not have a lane line i mean there are streets that are very busy that don't even have a line down the middle maybe you have it maybe you don't but what you'll usually see on a street like that is a very clear line of sight that is the driver can see where they're going from way far away they can see what's happening at the intersection that are they're, they're approaching from pretty far away um, and there's no physical obstacles perhaps there's cars parked along the curb but there are no real physical obstacles. There's no, well, you know, in Santa Cruz, we've done a lot of these speed bumps, but I'm talking about physical obstacles that sort of intrude into the street space. Mm -hmm. And those streets where the traffic goes fast, Mm -hmm. they don't have anything to really, it's safe to drive fast from the driver's point of view, may not be safe for pedestrians or bicyclists, It may not be pleasant for people who live on the street, but that street is really safe for drivers to drive fast on because they can see what's coming, and there's plenty of room to maneuver and do what they need to do to keep going fast. And then think about a street where people never seem to drive fast. (laughs) That street might even be just as wide as the other street in most of its profile, but it probably has several other things going on. It probably has things that intrude into the street space. Maybe they're curb extensions, you know, where you've got a a little like a planter box sticking out. Uh, Maybe it's got trees that span over the street and kind of block some of the peripheral view. Maybe it doesn't have good visibility at the corner. And maybe it's, you know, it might be a narrower street. It might not. It might just have a few features that make it appear narrower. Those streets are, you know, those kinds of things that make that street look less safe to go fast on and cause people to slow down. You can do that on any street. You can build curb extensions. You can add planters that intrude into the street. You can even make lanes narrower. And there is something that's known as complete streets. It's a movement, if you will. Um, And there are a whole lot of cities who've adopted complete street standards. I'm going to pick Chicago, not necessarily because it's comparable to Santa Cruz, but because they've done a very complete job of creating complete street standards. And what they mean by complete is a street's not complete in a city unless it's equally usable by pedestrians, bicyclists, businesses that want to have open space onto the street, um, and automobiles, and transit. So, you know, if we don't have complete streets that are not really equally usable, we can make them so, and in many cases, relatively easily. Um, San Jose has done a wonderful job of creating protected bike lanes, and they're doing it really cheaply with, like, plastic bollards and paint. Um, And we've seen similar stuff in like countless cities, I and mean, we don't have time to go into all these examples, but the just modifying the streets alone can make that area much more walkable because it's suddenly safer for pedestrians and more pleasant. And typically the things you do to slow cars down, like a curb extension that makes the distance of the crosswalk across the intersection shorter, also is nicer for pedestrians. A, a planter space that extends into the, You know, parking lane that has a tree in it makes the area shadier, um, more beautiful, Uh, all these things that some of which we're now able to quantify, but some are still unquantified benefits, but we know they're there. Um, So that's the street angle. The other side of this is, is what's going on on the street? And um, that's something where you can start to make incremental change, um, depending on what vacant space you have or space that's ready to be, you know, replaced with something new. Um, so that's just one visualization. You know, hopefully makes sense to people uh, without all the slides and graphics. But, um, but there's a whole, there's a whole school of thought now called sprawl repair. And there's actually a book you can get online called the sprawl repair manual. If you want the electronic version, it's free. And, and it has some wonderful illustrations of how things like shopping malls, major boulevards, um, you name it, uh, strip malls are transformed first, you know, with some wholesale changes and then following that with incremental changes over time to completely transform those types of spaces from a car dominant space to a people-friendly space, you know, basically making it human scale, which is what everybody loves when they're touristing and, you know, whether it's in Charleston, South Carolina, old town, or it's, you know, all these beautiful cities in, in Europe or, you know, North Africa or wherever you go, what makes those places so charming is they're at human scale and they have really interesting things happening on the street. They have variety. Um, and that can happen in our cities, but we have to make a concerted effort to make it happen.
0: Well, so, you know, when you talk about, about streets, I think of of course, of mission and Soquel and, um, the city is tries, tries to channel traffic to, you know, along mission rather than into, into neighborhoods. So is there a way to calm mission or are do we, are we doomed to have it remain a major artery that gets backed up all the time?
1: Well, I, you know, part of this is, you know, okay. There's there are people who have to go from place to place, right? right. You have to have some movement. So the so then the question is, well, why why are we moving people? <laughs> you know, why is there so much need to be mobile? And um, it was very interesting the first you know call it six weeks of the shelter in place orders when only so called essential workers were actually going to work and all non-essential workers so-called were working from home or not working and how much less traffic there was right everybody right. witnessed yeah. that it was it was so quiet that we were getting species of birds in the city and you know intrusions of wild animals that we rarely see um so mission i mean Mission is a difficult problem because there really isn't anything else paralleling it that has anywhere near the kind of carrying capacity. Um, And there's also an interesting, you know, side note of this is that Mission Street on the west side is a state highway. And so the Caltrans actually has authority over signal timing on Mission over they have to approve every change to the profile of that street so it's you know it's a mixed authority it's not just the city getting to decide what to do there but Mm -hmm. the the main point I want to make here is like well why do people live far from where they work and we all you know we I'm sure if you live in Santa Cruz area you're gone well because they can't afford it you know you're right but why is our land use such that housing is way over here and affordable housing is even farther over there and workplaces or places that people need to go to shop or for services are over in this other place. Why aren't they close together? Why don't we mix them up so that, you know, if you need to go to the store, you know, you go downstairs and you go next door you know or you need to go to the doctor you walk two blocks and you go to the doctor like Mm -hmm. there's no real rational reason to keep these things spread far apart those kinds of activities can be close and that's one of the things people you know love about San Francisco is every neighborhood has its own this and its own that and it's you know and that of course all dates from um, pre-government planning times (laughs) there's of course there's stores on every damn corner or cafes or whatever it is because that's how the place was built because that's how people lived you know it's like oh look (laughs) here's all these houses and here's this opportunity to open a saloon or whatever it is Um, and any city that developed with that kind of vernacular I'll call it vernacular planning the uses are always mixed up And it wasn't until post world war II that we came in with the silly notion of dividing everything up so far. And we do have a challenge trying to address affordability and we do have a challenge trying to address the sort of pattern of, you know, employment centers that we have now. And then we have the specific challenges of like, what do you do with a street like mission? You know, my own, my own take on mission street is, until you really change how much people have to travel to buy vehicle to get where they're going. I'm not saying no mobility. I'm just saying if we're dependent on automobiles to do so many of the trips that we need to make in a day, then we're going to have traffic. And if we can be not dependent on automobiles and we can do it by walking bicycling or taking public transit that actually works and meets our needs, mm-hmm. then we don't need to be driving. And that's the best way really to get to a point where streets like mission are not going to be tangled up with traffic half the day. Um, and then of course, you know, we all know that if you go there at one o'clock in the morning, Hey, there's no traffic and it's not a problem. <laughs> right? So yeah, that's one of the funny things about streets, um, and roads is that, they're these expensive pieces of pavement with a lot of public works underneath them. And we actually only intensively use them a small percentage of the time, but we pay for them all the time.
0: Hmm. Um, okay, let me take a, another break. Uh, you're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM on your radio dial and ksqd.org on the Internet. Over to you, Emily. Emily.
3: Thanks, Ronnie. On the next Be Bold America, KSQD hosts the first of a series of discussions between a lifelong Republican and a lifelong Democrat. Host Jill Cody welcomes Kristen Collishaw, Chair of the Santa Cruz County Republican Central Committee, and Moderator Andrew Hanauer, Executive Director of the One America Movement. Searching for common ground, they start with the primary viewpoint and that American democracy will survive only if partisans begin to heal their divisions and reunite as America's first. Our goal is to model how two people with different points of view might be able to bridge the political divide and reimagine unity. Our future depends on it. That's next Sunday, July 19th at 5 p.m. And it airs again at Tuesday, July 21st at 6 a.m. on KSQD. 90.7 Ninety point seven FM, your ink spot on the dial, or listen online at ksqd.org. Back to you, Ronnie.
0: Okay, hello out there. You're listening to Sustainability now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and uh, I'm having a conversation with Len Bea uh, about sustainable urban planning, especially as it applies to Santa Cruz. So, um, Len, let me let me bring up the elephant in the room. Uh, you know, I had uh, Rick Longanati on the radio show. A, uh, I don't know, a few months ago. And, um, we talked a little bit about the, uh, the, what was then the, the proposal, uh, to build a garage for library books. And now the city council has <laughs> approved the plan. So nice phrasing. I'm, I'm wondering, yeah, well uh, probably people out there who won't like it. Um, but, but so now we're, we're, we're going ahead with this and, and I'm wondering how does this fit in with sustainable urban development in santa cruz or does it
1: well i think if you you look at where we stand with um several crises that are coming down the pike some of which are pretty well known to a lot of our listeners and some not so much Uh, one is obviously climate change well the other I'm going to say that well, another one that's really not really get, doesn't get much press is the problem of mining. Um, we have uh, an enormous dependency in the United States and the European Union and other developed countries on vast um, demolition of the surface of the earth for the purpose of extracting minerals and then enormous amounts of energy use. To turn that ore, whatever it is or in some cases oil and gas and coal into the the products and material that we use all the plastics of course are made from petrochemicals um, and there is a diminishing number of mining sites left we really can't continue to rip the earth apart for minerals we're going to have to a learn how to reuse what we've already extracted and you know remanufacture it and B, we're going to have to use less. And so when people say, oh, we're going to solve all our problems with autonomous electric vehicles, all I can say is, where are you going to get all the material to replace all the vehicles in the world with nice little autonomous electric vehicles? It ain't gonna happen. We don't have the mining resources to do that. We are almost tapped out. And we're also causing enormous environmental damage in the poorer nations of the world with the continuing mining operations that we have. And the same goes for fracking and oil extraction and gas extraction. It's destroying landscapes at a time when we can't afford to destroy landscapes because we need every inch of fertile ground we can. To sequester carbon if we're ever going to deal with stopping climate change, Um, which of course isn't happening because we're still pumping vast amounts of CO2 and other greenhouse gases into into the atmosphere on the order of billions of tons an hour. Try to put your mind around billions of tons an hour of anything. And that's what's happening every hour of every week of every year with the amount of greenhouse gases we're still producing. So all of these things, and also the financial crisis facing trying to maintain suburbia, which ain't going to happen, we're we're looking at deferred maintenance backlogs that are not shrinking but growing every year, to the point where, yeah, you got potholes on your road, guess what? We're all going to be joining that club soon, because we can't afford to maintain those roads At least for the existing amount of traffic indefinitely we just simply don't have the resources financially so having said that building a garage for cars doesn't even make sense if you actually have a need for more parking space because we've got to be transforming our transportation system over the next decade or two So we don't have this dependence on cars. But in the case of Santa Cruz, we already know from the consultant reports that the city paid for that we actually don't need a garage. We actually don't need one. So tying the library up with building a garage that we don't need, that one could argue we can't really afford given the other things that should be priorities, is... A very strange and unfortunate, I'm going to call it a mistake, but I think there's some, there's some deliberate, I don't know what motivation behind it. The other factor here is, you know, they're trying to get a good new library, which is an honorable goal. And people voted in a city or a county initiative to help fund renovation of the libraries. And the way the scenarios have been drawn, it looks to the library as an entity, like it's cheaper to move into a garage building than it is to renovate their existing downtown branch. But the money that's paying for the garage is offsetting some of the construction costs for a library. All the foundation work, all the utilities work that comes into the building is included in the garage costs. The library doesn't have to pay for any of that. Well, why not take a small, tiny bit of the unnecessary expense of garage and contribute it from the city budget to helping the library have an adequate budget to renovate where they are now? It would be much cheaper than building a garage by tens of millions of dollars and it would allow the library to stay where it is and not only that it would make it possible to take that area that they're you know looking at as the site of the garage which is now the site of uh the farmers market every week and the antiques fair and and the you know all these other different kinds of events that happen there over the course of the of a year and really turn that into a really attractive and useful public space um, that is only secondarily for parking, but primarily as like a downtown commons, um, which it's already serving to some extent in that role, but it doesn't look like it's designed for that. And we could make it look like it's designed for that. It would be much more inviting. And all of that could be done for a tiny fraction of the cost of building an unneeded garage which by the way they're talking about incorporating housing in that garage but they don't have any money to build the housing part that's just an imaginary future
0: fiction well i suppose it makes it sound palatable Um, listen i we're running out of time and so uh... you just mentioned the, the the city commons idea and i think i you know told you that i saw a letter in the santa cruz sentinel a few weeks ago proposed which proposed turning Pacific Avenue into a pedestrian mall, and I was wondering what you thought about that.
1: (laughs) Well, I I'm not, I'm not in principle opposed to it. I think in the case of, of Pacific Avenue, um, it works pretty well now as a thoroughfare that has both a lot of pedestrian and bicycle activity. I I really you know kudos to the city for finally building the counterflow bicycle lane. Um, you know, it's narrow enough. It's windy enough. People drive slowly 99% of the time. Um, you know, and it's, it's a nice pedestrian friendly space. It doesn't have to be a pedestrian mall to be good. Um, so, you know, do we need to deal with that? I don't know. It seems like kind of a secondary question. Um, the, the advantage of, uh, allowing cars on the street is that, you know, most of the time there aren't that many people down there. So it makes it look really full and busy when there are people on the sidewalks, if they had to fill up the whole street. Well, you know, every Halloween that happens, but otherwise, you know, not so much. So, um, you know, I'd rather just have them close down the street periodically for special events and keep it as it is, because I think there's, you know, they build the sidewalks wide enough. They put in enough trees, um, I don't think it would be a bad thing to have more benches, although some people think that's an invitation to more homeless loitering. But mm. um, but other than that, I I mean, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with the current design of, of Pacific. And, you know, we can, you know, I want to say shout out to the original Pacific Garden Mall design, yeah. <laughs> which whose legacy created the expectation for a really walkable space on Pacific so that when they rebuilt after the earthquake it was still uh, pretty good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, we're just about out of time and I want to thank you so much for uh, being my guest on the show. I know there's a, an off we could keep doing this for hours and hours.
1: <laughs> I'm afraid so I
0: would and I would love to do that, but um, uh, I'm afraid uh, we're going to have to uh, to to say goodbye for the time being.
1: Thanks for having
0: uh, me. <laughs> and thank you so much. So two weeks, two weeks from today, on July 26th, my guest will be environmental artist Marisha Farnsworth. Marisha is an artist based in Oakland whose large-scale public space interventions explore future ecosystems, infrastructural utopias, and the social and ecological implications of materiality in the built environment. Her work has been exhibited at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, the Venice Biennale, and is in the collection of the Nevada Museum of Art. She was the lead artist for the 2017 Temple at Burning Man, so that should pique the interest of many of our listeners. So please join me on Sunday, July 26, 5 to 6 p.m., right here on KSQD 90.7 FM on your dial or on ksqd.org. This show will be rebroadcast Tuesday morning from 6 to 7 a.m., and you can hear previous shows at ksquid.org backslash sustainability now or sustainablesystemsfoundation.org. Coming up in the next few weeks, on August 9th, Dr. Rupa Basug from the California Office on Environmental Health Hazards uh, on Air Pollution uh, to talk about air pollution, heat exposure, and the effects on childbirth. And on August 23rd, science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson, who is also a California futurist, is going to talk about sustainability after Anus Horribilis* 2020. I want to give thanks to Emily Donham, who has been the engineer in the station, and until every other Sunday, sustainability now.
3: Tropic climes and marsh uh, through currents and thriving seas. And winds blowing through breathing trees. And strong moats on safe sunshine. Good
0: planets are hard to find.